0: appreciate you guys tuning in and staying patient with me as i've uh, changed the dates up on this podcast and now doing it on thursdays uh but i managed to uh trick a really great guest into coming in today (laughs) uh somebody i think you guys are going to really love super smart uh and uh you know it's it can be very difficult to get people to kind of do this podcast as you know uh uh it's very difficult for people to open up and kind of give, but I was able to find somebody I think that is ready for that and uh, has a, a wealth of knowledge for you guys. Uh, so I wanted to uh, kind of get right into it um, and uh, introduce you. And uh, it's very, very special guest. I hope you guys will love this podcast. Um, Nicole, can you hear me out all right?
1: I can hear you just fine, Mike.
0: Uh, awesome, awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, you want to start this podcast by uh, giving it a little, right, and uh, telling the audience a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, my background is a little all over the place. I spent a number of years starting off my career in infectious disease, environmental health, working for the state of California oh, wow. and the CDC, and then I transitioned into medical technology and I spent 16 years uh, honestly trying to get medical technologies launched in the US and a lot of that had to do actually with getting these med covered by health plans insurance companies in the US and so that was a slog but I did that for 16 years the uh, the company that I helped build got acquired by a big multinational firm. I didn't want to work for a big multinational firm. Uh, my daughter was just three years old at the time. So mm. I kind of took the money and ran and I mm. thought, well, you know, I, I'd been leading departments and leading teams for so many years And I thought, if I had to do the one thing, the one part of that that I loved the most, uh, what would that be? And that was basically coaching, you know, really smart, talented, young professionals. And so I started my own coaching firm. I've been doing that for a few years now, four or five years um, but I was never able really to leave the med tech environment. I just I, I think the innovation there and, you know, mm-hmm. there's so many cool new things going on with AI and machine learning. And Absolutely. I, I don't know, I just kind of got sucked back in. So I'm doing I'm doing stuff in that space still. Um, but, you know, more upstream, so more okay. venture capital and advising startup founders and weaving in the uh, the coaching that so many people need when you're starting, you know, a, a company. It's kind of, it's a crazy time and a crazy space to be in. So, so yeah, that's brought me to where I am today.
0: And, and now let me circle back. That was so much. Oh my goodness. Um, infectious disease. How did that start And you know, a childhood dream of yours, you know, and when to go into mm. that type of biology or where did that all start and that passion come from?
1: Yeah, it was one of those things where if you just kind of and follow your interests, mm-hmm. you land in places that you predicted, but yeah. were absolutely right for you at the time. And so for me, I, you know, I was in college, I was getting a biology degree, I needed a part-time job. Um, you know, in California, it's kind of interesting that the health department was in Berkeley at the time and so i was mm, okay. i was going to cal and then i i got a part-time job doing just whatever d- data entry filing like whatever it was yeah. And, and yeah i i you know when you're when you're young and curious and ambitious and you just you want to know how things work um, you catch the eye of certain people and there was a state epidemiologist who kind of took me under her wing and, uh, yeah, she, she exposed me to a lot of stuff that, you know, people with master's degrees and master degrees in public health working on at the time. And I was just this, you know, undergrad who didn't know right from left and she, uh, yeah, she just exposed me to stuff and I was working on cool stuff. I was, you know, and, I, you know, I got exposed to so many things through her and it really generated just a lot, you know, the initial curiosity, you get, you get exposed to to something and it just generates more curiosity. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's an infectious oh. disease that I, that I got into that.
0: And now I'm sure you could speak to how important mentorship is that uh, do you, you know, really thoroughly remember this mentor? Do you still speak to them at all? Or how did that relationship form and and carry on?
1: Yeah. Well, what was really interesting is when when I look back, just taking a much broader view, Mm -hmm. I didn't actually realize how. To have had over the course of my career. (laughs) um i've had uh i i'd say two, two come to the very top but two exceptional exceptional female mentors and one of them was very very early in my career was the state epidemiologist i think she saw something in me and she just you know she said you you do some fast programming here like what you're not going to break anything just here's the manual you do it figure it out play along whatever right she just mm-hmm. but she didn't hurt myself right There was a lot of <laughs> she was a beautiful balance of exposing me to new things but also really good oversight and teaching and mentorship and uh and then later in my career i had a mentor who again was exceptional and she she just a different way of thinking and the, just exposure hmm. to different ways of thinking, like um, so critical until later that I realized, Oh yeah, not, not a lot of people have access to that level of exceptional female mentor. And, yeah, uh, and so there's a big, that's a huge, huge priority to, to be that mentor for other people now.
0: Awesome. We're going to get to that later too. That's, that's great that you said that. Um, and now kind of to get back into this uh, infectious disease here, as I keep bringing that up and biology. Um, now you worked in med tech for 15 years. Do you remember yeah. um, kind of your big aha moment where it hits you where this is what you kind of wanted to do for the next few decades?
1: Um, it wasn't so much an aha moment as mm-hmm. I, I knew what I didn't want to do. So there, there was a fork in the road pretty early on mm-hmm. where I could take the traditional path, which is, uh, you know, g- going into market intelligence and, you know, more traditional business side of Mm -hmm. of med tech, but I would need to go back to school. Honestly, I'd need to get an MBA. I'd need to kind of take these steps to, to go down that path, or I could take this other path that was uh, less well known. And Mm -hmm. uh, this was, it was for um, understanding the mechanics of how medical technologies were covered by insurance companies. It was kind of this other realm that was not, uh, you know, understanding markets, but really understand understanding health plans and payers in the U.S. And so the, gotcha. it wasn't like I had an aha moment. It was like, well, I don't want to go to med school or I don't want to go to uh, business school. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if I didn't go down you know, business school, my career was going to halt and, you know, come to, a. so it was like, well, I'm going to go down this other path. And that just the most beautiful, beautiful choice for me, because for a lot, it was, it was (laughs) unchartered at the time. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of things coming out of like Medicare and just like crazy stuff that a lot of people don't typically think about. And uh-huh. a lot of insight into how the healthcare system works in the U.S. Yes. That I got exposed to, and I, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that I have been exposed to that stuff if I had taken the more traditional route. But um, again, it was it was the choice between do I go down the traditional path and hit all these milestones. Or do mm-hmm. I take something a little bit more unchartered, um, fall down a lot, and just yes. like try and figure it out? Um, yes. th- and that was that was the right path for me.
0: Hmm. Now, can we let me take you back thirteen years ago uh, okay. to now, two thousand and eight, where in my household I was sixteen, about to be seventeen at the time. President Obama was uh, running and about to be elected, and Obamacare was this huge topic. Can you recall how that affected uh, you and your work and and the industry?
1: Yeah. Well, one thing that's really interesting is when when Obama did, I mean, there were lots and lots of priorities, right? Anytime there's Mm -hmm. a change in administration, they've got all the things that they want to do. And I was actually surprised that he went down the healthcare route and made that the yes. first priority. Because remember at the time, there was the financial crisis and all the other things. Yes. And I thought, <laughs> well, that that's the thing that he's gonna be focusing on. Uh, no, and he ended up going down the route of Obamacare. And mm-hmm. it was one of, th- you knew there was a sea change happening. Mm-hmm. You knew that it wasn't going to be perfect it just wasn't yep. it it was going to be rocky there were going to be all the things wrong with it but it's it's one of those things where you know you have these moments in history where you feel that there's a sea change you know that something different needs to happen it's not going to be perfect it's not going to be you know 100% right but you know at some point you're like well we need to you need to do something you need to start getting on the path of doing a thing Mm -hmm. in order to start adjusting and refining the thing instead of staying in where you're not going to do anything until it's perfect because well I mean we all know what happens when you wait until a thing is perfect yes never (laughs) ever happens so Mm -hmm. so yeah and so you know that was I mean, we joked it was like, uh, you know, the, the Consultants Employment Act of, you know, <laughs> you know 2008.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. And now, now, fast forward back to present day, now 2020, January, when COVID hit. Uh, how has that affected you and in your industry now? And then what are your thoughts on the whole thing? Without yeah. you getting you in too much trouble, right? Yeah,
1: well, you know, again, I, I mentioned at the beginning that there's a lot of really fascinating stuff happening in AI. Yes. And yes. uh, you know, one example on the on the COVID side of things is um I may have it wrong. I don't I don't know if it was a, an Eli Lilly drug, but the, you know, what happens mm-hmm. is you run all this and, and then, then you ask AI, well, tell me what the answer is, right? And you may have, you know, so much of science is you have a hypothesis, you test the hypothesis and the results either support the hypothesis or not, right? Mm -hmm. But in AI, it's like, well, here's all the data. You tell us what the data say. And, you know, it was, there was a AI identified a drug. I think it was in rheumatoid arthritis where it was something totally unrelated, right? And AI was, you know, the thing that said, yeah, try this. This is going to treat COVID. And there was no way that we would have figured that out in that amount of time. And so I I think when you have a national and international crisis like this, you get a lot more focus, right? So things are Mm -hmm. moving at a quicker clip than they might otherwise if things were just left to, you know, if we had the, the 100 priorities instead of the one priority. And so that's one observation. The second observation is that, uh, again, it was rocky and it still is rocky, but I think yeah. the L- people working from home and finding mm-hmm. flexibility in how they're living their lives and how they're building their, yeah. their family lives and their home lives relative to their work lives. Mm-hmm. It's rocky, but I think it's a very, very positive development. I think that you know some companies have handled it better than others, but I think that direction that we're moving in and the fact that honestly, the pandemic has lasted as it has, um, mm-hmm. and we keep getting these spikes of whatever, new variants, um, mm-hmm. is is causing some of the positive changes in that domain to stick, right? It's not like a rubber band where everybody works from home and then, you know, this global pandemic kind of went away and now it's, everything snaps back to the way it was before. That's not happening. Mm-hmm. There's no snap back. No, <laughs> so, absolutely not. So things are becoming, uh, you know, the ways of working are actually becoming more entrenched in, in this new paradigm. And I think it's, it's a positive thing, as rocky as it
0: is. Now, uh, we saw COVID and, you know, our response uh, kind of be a little messy, right? But then things get figured out. But uh, I can say, you know, as an American that we probably have failed a little bit on distribution of vaccination. Um, whether you know you want to take it or you don't, I say we've yeah. had a lot of hurdles there. But even globally, right? Um, do you see any solutions for that in sight? I and do you see COVID kind of this pandemic extending, you know, into our next election or you know more throughout this decade?
1: Yeah. Well, I think that there is an element to this that is, you know, kind of Im- embedded in the American identity and mentality of, Mm -hmm. of, you know, freedom, independence, you know, this, this is how we operate here. Um, You don't tell me what to do, that kind of thing. Uh Um, Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, we see it in healthcare, honestly. So a lot of people say, you know, the healthcare system is broken and stuff like this. And I'm like, well, you know, I mean, it's kind of, it. it's operating the way the incentives are aligned to operate. Yes. In other countries where people are okay with the, I'm oversimplifying, you know, a little bit here, but where, where the government can decide, well, this is what you can get and this is what you can't get. Or this is, mm-hmm. this works just fine. And this is, you know, a little too expensive for the, effectiveness that it's going to provide, mm-hmm. right? So governments are deciding that. And then people are signing up and saying, I, I will accept what the government tells me I can get and not get in these certain circumstances. Um yes. yeah, in the US, that doesn't fly as well, right? <laughs> in the US, like <laughs> if if your mom is in the hospital or grandma is in the hospital, and then somebody tells you well, we can't you know, you can't cover that drug, you can't have that drug, you know, whatever, because of X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Americans are like, don't, no, I want, give it, give it to my mom, <laughs> give it to my grandma. <laughs> tell me no yeah. that I can't have a thing, right? And so yeah, there is a certain element of that American identity, American mentality that comes into play. With the And uh, no judgment, right, wrong or indifferent, we could debate that separately, but I still yeah. believe that it is that mentality that is coming into play for some of the vaccine stuff and other things that we see in
0: healthcare. Absolutely. Now, would you, to look uh, in the future here, how long do you think we stay in this thing, this pandemic, and do you think it's maybe the first of, you know, a few or many this decade?
1: I, I don't know. I couldn't even begin to speculate on that. It it's gonna last it, you know, I, I don't see the next year changing. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean you know, it is there there are so many variables involved yeah. that is not just whether or not decides to become vaccinated or get the booster shots or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. There mm-hmm. the nature of the virus itself is a huge yeah. factor um Absolutely. and yeah and so you know there are so so many things at play and and you know from the individual level to the community level the societal level and then you know all the other circumstances involved but yeah i, I don't think it's something that you know is going be solved me. anytime soon like there's going to be some sort of magic whatever <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like I can't even envision right like what what sort of magic would need to happen that this is suddenly a complete <laughs> non-issue like in the next six yeah. to 12 months I mean that yeah that's not going to happen right so yeah. so um we are it is a new way of operating a new way of living a new way of learning uh, it, it's just an e now
0: absolutely absolutely And now to kind of get back to uh, med tech here, um, I wanted to get your uh, opinions on some technologies here, some maybe emerging technologies. Sure. Have you uh, seen anything, or do you have any solutions yourself on things you'd like to see kind of pop up in the uh, med tech space?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm I'm so bullish on AI. I think it has... Mm -hmm. Now where mm-hmm. AI has its biggest initial applications are in things like imaging things like you know making making a better diagnosis for a patient yes. and putting together a better more informed treatment or management um you know patient management plan um the the challenge though is having government institutions like just know what to do with this stuff right and so you have these you know either ai developed technologies or ongoing machine learning tools that Mm -hmm. you know where health plans are like i don't i don't know i mean is is more information good i mean that's a genuine Mm -hmm. question that they have yes and right so the question is, how do you prove that some more information is good? Um, and, you know, from the health plans perspective, they, they want to know, well, if, if we have this additional information and doctors have it and patients are more informed, um, do the patients actually have better health outcomes? Mm. Do they bounce back yeah. from surgery quicker? Do they reduce their pain medication? Do they uh, have a fewer recurrence of the disease? I mean, those are the types of things that when you're asking the question is more information good? Like, yeah. how are you defining good? Right. And so that question comes up a lot. And then you have all these new really beautiful AI-based technologies that are, is making the information better, right? More focused, more detailed, more informed, all of those things. And we still don't know, is it good? <laughs> I mean, yeah. does it help the patients? <laughs> I mean, you know, and so that is something that, number one, uh, med tech companies can become better at answering, right? Yes. You know, instead of just defining, you know, this technology is great. This technology does what it says it's going to do. You know, just taking mm-hmm. it a step further and saying, and this is how much better the patients do when you, when they get this technology, right? Those are two separate things.
0: Yes. And, and oh, go mm-hmm. ahead
1: Yeah. Oh, and the only other thing I was going to say is besides that, if that's not happening, then then the default is time. Just Mm, time. Right. So if you know, with enough people using the technology and enough data being collected as we go, not not Mm -hmm. in clinical studies or clinical trials, but just real life, you get enough data on this. And then you learn if it's good mm-hmm. and how good is it and all of those things. But that, you know, that timeline can be quite long.
0: Now, now, I think we're looking at a few different like, uh, engineering and hiring solutions here. Um, because you know, with hospitals, I will say in my own experience and what I've seen, you know, yeah. the people who do the data entry aren't the same people who would do data entry at a place like Yahoo or Intel right, and reporting mm-hmm. results. And so we have these issues like we had during COVID, more rampant than ever. Where, oh, this hospital's lying about this number, and this hospital can't keep track about this data, right? Yeah. Is there a, really this kind of backend problem with the data at hospitals? And is it possible for us to establish a, you know, mm-hmm. uh, chain of trust with the data mm-hmm. to be, be able to even aggregate and collect it in the first place? Yeah, really,
1: right. Such, such a great question. Yeah, and <clears throat> I think you know when I when i think of that question i think of it in in two ways or two stages right Mm -hmm. uh one is you to the degree possible you want to make sure garbage out problem which is you know make sure that people who are entering the data, collecting the data, or doing it in a consistent, reliable way, according to Mm -hmm. whatever protocols and best practices, right? So everything that you can do at that stage to make that good, you wanna do. But the second thing I think about is you're never gonna get the data absolutely right? Hospital A is gonna have different practices than hospital B. Um, And that's because America, Right. Like, yep. you know, <laughs> so that's just people can do things the way they want to do them. And so it's it's never going to be absolutely, you know, perfect in terms of consistency. And, yeah, you, you always deal with variability or the, you know, the people who are. The, data, the people who are actually designing the data collection. Right. It's there's all kinds of variability. So the second question becomes: Well, the mm-hmm. data that you do have, um, you know, we used to say, you know, the data are the data. I mean, I can't, you know, mm-hmm. once the once the data is entered, and you can clean it up and go back and do error reporting and other things to optimize that data. But once you have it, it is, and, and as much as you want to get to truth. Uh, yeah. you got to work with what you've got, right? And so Absolutely. there are things like, um, and a lot of people don't know this stuff, but, uh, you know, Medicare, which is the largest payer in the US, all the Medicare mm-hmm. claims data are in the public domain. Hmm. So it, it doesn't have patients' patient identifying information, but like every. Yeah claim from every hospitalization or, you know, setting of care for, for every patient going back, you know, 10 years or whatever it is. So if you wanted yep. to see trends, like that data is available, you could go yeah. onto the Medicare website, you know, and just kind of download this <laughs> and you can see now, is it, is it good? Uh, I don't know. It's what we've got. So, <laughs> you know, we got to make some <laughs> point you know, do you want to work on making the data better? You can certainly do that. Do you want to work on, once we have the data that we have, analyzing it in a certain way and implementing policy in a way that, you know, optimizes that? You can work both sides of that that equation.
0: Do you think healthcare should be more health-based or health insurance, I guess, insurance premiums and things like that should be based more on The individual and and their state rather than you know these just uh overall premiums based on age and things like that like should there be more in-depth analysis you know uh, before giving an insurance premium
1: yeah i um
0: that's wishful thinking i'm sure yeah i
1: think i think there's there's an element to this which is you know it's one of those questions where i kind of wish that i had a this imaginary person who Mm -hmm brilliant but um had no knowledge of how the healthcare system worked in the u.s and had just had no uh you know preconceived notions like if they Mm -hmm. had to build it from scratch what would they do right knowing what they know how would they build it differently how would they build a different system um but it's so hard to do that because everybody is in Operating in the system. There are so many stakeholders mm-hmm. and you have interaction with those stakeholders and you have opinions about those things. So yeah, yeah I don't know. There are there are people on very high much higher pay grades than <laughs> I am <laughs> who have tried to to figure that that question. And uh, yeah, there's no
0: one size, definitely. <laughs> uh, yeah, wish we'll take. You know, huh? yeah. <laughs> Uh, so now the future of med tech uh, and some breakthrough technologies. Have you seen anything that you wanted to bring up or you would like to see happen? Like uh, the med beds and all these really cool things, anything regarding genealogy, uh, anything cool mm-hmm. you want to bring up?
1: Yeah, I, um, I like a lot of the stuff that is uh, going on in, um, well, I, I personally spent a lot of time in medical device And so Mm. diagnostics have always been really exciting to me. So, you know, and, and I, I have worked in the past on truly just (laughs) amazing, amazing technologies and real disruptors. Like, you know, a lot of people can talk about innovation and disruption, and I've worked on technologies that. Truly like they had to rewrite the guide on how to treat patients because of these Mm. technologies. Right. And, you know, there was a lot of stuff. I worked in transplant. I worked in, you know, heart assist. um, I worked in spine. I, I, but a lot of the work in molecular diagnostics also just fascinating stuff. And, you know, you have this beautiful foundation of, a a lot of research being done, a lot of cool technologies, and then AI component, you're just adding another level of, you know, more interesting, more informed, uh, you know, development. And so I'm super curious to see how that all plays out. Um, Not, not only in, again, AI is mostly in uh, imaging and diagnostics right now, but Wow to, to see it evolve into uh, get, get embedded in, in more treatment algorithms that that's pretty exciting stuff.
0: What about the robotic robotic aspect? have you seen anything or do you expect anything to come in particular?
1: Um, that isn't a space that I've uh, paid much attention to um, just because it hasn't been on on my radar. Uh, mm-hmm. The most exposure that I've had to it, and again this was like I don't know, 10 years ago, um, was, you know, stuff in the surgical suite. Um, yeah. and, and that's just, that's really cool stuff. Um, you know, a lot of work in ophthalmology, uh, you know, yep. working on the eyes, uh, mm-hmm. huge, huge strides are made, are being made there. Um, beautiful stuff, but I, I, <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> Because the eye is a little bit, yeah, gives me the heebie-jeebies yeah. a little bit <laughs> to see people work on the eye. That's not exactly the 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 thing that I focus on so much. But I I do know that there's a lot of really cool stuff in that space, and people are making huge strides, and you know, glaucoma and things like that. So that's going to be fun to watch.
0: Absolutely, and now this data we've talked about is going to be feeding these robots in, you know, uh, an AI-driven world, right?
1: Yeah, um, definitely. What,
0: what would you say to the job loss? Right, let me doomsday it a little bit here. Uh, yeah. Potentially, you know, with the robots, uh, these data-driven robots being able to do things like analyze, um, and having all of the tools like the urine, uh, sorry, toilets, uh, things like you know the sensor systems to pick up things inside of your body. And uh, you know, see you much quicker and diagnose you much quicker. Do you think that's going to affect job loss long term in the healthcare, like with nursing and shortages of doctors, and you know, being replaced by robots? Even.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's like a one to one like replace. Replace isn't the word yeah. that I think of, um, mm-hmm. but there it it's definitely uh, it can be really disruptive. But I think it's a Absolutely. slow disruption. Right. It's not like you snap your fingers and inside of, you know, a couple of years, you know, robots take over your jobs. But I do think so. It's it's a slow roll. And I and I think Mm -hmm. that the more people are thinking ahead in terms of, well, how do I position myself relative to some of these changes that are occurring? Right. Because it's it's not just a replacement, but um, it's more you know, the roles that people play relative to the the new technology, there are are new roles being developed, new skill sets that that are needed. Um, And so that's the way I think people need to, to think about this stuff. And you know there's and then there's a lot of so much of it is data honestly so Mm -hmm. a lot of these things just collect more data and then again there's more data out there is more information good you know can you position yourself and is there a a whole wealth of positions being created for people who know how to make sense of the data and can be really innovative about the data like not just you know telling us, well, this is what the data mean, which is one level, and that's a very, very important thing, very highly prized, tell us what the data mean. But secondly, well, now that we have the data, um, can we collate data from disparate sources? Can we, again, use AI to make that data more predictive? You know, how do we push the envelope on what we can do with data to make more and Form decisions on a go forward than just using the data to tell us what happened in the past. That's going to be Absolutely. some exciting stuff.
0: And you know, I, I've noticed the uh, buzzword that a lot of the big tech guys and a lot of our smartest guys uh, in this country use side, right? Robots yeah. and traditionally working alongside us. Um, but would you be open to giving childbirth yourself uh, with robots assisting in the room or maybe a robot even being the one to catch the baby? Uh,
1: well, that's interesting. Um, sure. I mean, if that, you know, I, you know, again, as long as it's been clinically validated and there's been enough, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I don't, you know, I don't want to be a guinea pig on that, but um <laughs> But at the point at which pose, it's, huh? yeah, sure. I mean, I, you know, my husband might like to catch the baby instead. So, you know, <laughs> he, he has right of first refusal on that. But if he says no, then the robot can, can do it instead, I guess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, and then really quick to round that out, what about uh, genetics? Are you knowledgeable oh. of, that, of that at all? Genetic therapy or genetic mutations and science and med tech?
1: Yeah, so the the place where I've had the most exposure to genetics is is in the realm of molecular diagnostics, right? Where
0: mm-hmm.
1: where they're they're your your DNA and telling you in terms of diagnosis like how much more at risk are you for developing yes. x disease or y disease or and um and yeah i mean honestly it comes back to the question of you know is that information good is it useful? Yeah. right you right yeah. so so you can have all these t- and then the question is well like if i'm if i'm at higher risk for uh, dementia or something like fill in the blank right um i mean does that mean that i Get it? Does it mean that like, if I'm at higher risk, does that mean that I am, does that directly translate to I am more likely to get it and then I should plan to get it? Or Mm -hmm. like, it's so confusing for patients, right? They don't means to be at higher risk for a thing. And so I I think there needs to be a lot better patient handholding, right? Mm -hmm. And what they've seen in the past is like physicians, the people who are managing the patients, right? They get the results from these tests, and they go, "Wow, that is really interesting." Um, hmm. But manage the patient differently.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely.
1: So, so again, is the data good? Is it useful? It, it's it's one thing if it has true utility. Like I, this, the information that I'm getting from these tests, these genetic tests or whatever they might be, um, Mm -hmm. that is actually going to influence how I treat this patient, how I manage this patient, what I tell this patient. Yes. If in the real world, physicians are looking at and going, wow, that's so fascinating. And then going back to the way they practice medicine The way they always have. Well, I don't know. Like now you're just putting a bunch of data out there to confuse patients.
0: Would you agree that, you know, the uh, data collectors, um, the next step in innovation would be to be able to take that data and make it predictive, right? Where they could start preventative care based on seeing the data and predicting that you will get this disease at this time if we don't start preventative care now? Like, is that possible, even too?
1: yeah i don't i don't know to what degree it's possible but i think the where you're headed and where i think you're right is how do we get better at translating the data so like what does yeah. it mean <laughs> like yes, we have all this absolutely. data tell me what it means i would love to see more of that right yes you know there are a lot of technology much better at that where it's not just here, this is a fantastic technology. It gives you more information. Go and is mm-hmm. more like, well, this is how you use the data. And this is yes. where it has specific utility. And not, and also not here, it's for all the patients everywhere, but it's really for these specific patients where it has the most utility. Okay, now we're talking. Now we're specific, we're focused. You can tell me what it means. And if we get to the point where it can be predictive, even better, but yeah, it's it's taken that extra step from just, we have more information to, we have more information and we know what to do with it.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. And I'll kind of get off that here. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the requirements now working in the healthcare field. As we see innovation um, happen in the healthcare field with tech, uh, and, uh, and then tech sectors, um, we've seen boot camps and certifications pop up and, you know, people just get so sharp in their skill sets to not have to go to college, right? Yeah. Uh, do you see doctors or surgeons or any major healthcare workers being able to, you know, become what they are in professional life uh, through certificates and boot camps and uh, long, maybe long-term apprenticeships rather than 8, 10, and 12 years of college in the future? yeah
1: i i don't see that happening um Mm -hmm. you know i don't know how far in the future something like that you know becomes something Mm -hmm. we should really consider um but i but i will say that there's there's a huge trend in people who have gone to medical school but then and didn't practice medicine Absolutely. instead took right took their medical school training and then applied it to business applied it to other things so i think mm-hmm. that they you know we may see more and more of this kind of almost like a cross-pollination of different industries which i think is is good and awesome. yep. yeah and and i do think that comes out of you know you have you know brilliant coders who are starting years old just dabbling and uh you know but to the degree that those types of individuals or or just you know brilliant coders coming out as you know other institutions um to the degree that they want to apply those skills to other industries that you know frankly historically they haven't really those things um to those other industries i i think that that there's so much potential there and you know, bringing, I've, I've always been a big fan of, you know, diversity of thought in the room when you're trying to solve problems, right? So, Mm -hmm. so people from different backgrounds, different training, getting them in the same room, and, you know, eliminating the whole, you know, all the judgments about ideas and stuff like that, and having people be self-conscious, and, you know, do the truly un in, in solving problems. I think there's so much more of that that can be done.
0: Definitely. Now, you know, to piggyback off that too, is age important to you in healthcare? Like, are you opposed to, you know, these mentorships say, or apprenticeships happening and, you know, people graduating high school at 16, maybe college at 19 and -hmm. being a practicing surgeon at age 26? You know, are you opposed to people being able to do that in this new era of uh, healthcare versus you know seeing gray hairs maybe normally when you walk in there feeling safer? Is that something that you look at?
1: Yeah, I think age is less of a factor. I, th- I think age is often a proxy for other things that really matter, uh-huh. right? Mm-hmm. And so, so you know, maturity and experience yeah. are, are I think what your what your point. You know, I've met a lot of people in their fifties that are about as mature as, you know, a 19 year old. And so I'm not sure that age is, you know, age is being used as a proxy there. So, um, so yeah, but I, I think that if there's one thing that I've learned kind of coming out of being, you know, in the corporate world and in industry for so long is that, you know, our leaders need good coaching, and they need good coaching earlier than you probably think they do. Um, You know, a lot of doesn't come into play until somebody reaches a VP level. Okay, now you you're making really important decisions. And so now you ought to have a coach. When really, it's like, look, you're, you're coming out of school. You're smart, ambitious, all these other things. I mean, it would be nice to have mentors, but I think there's something about being actively coached through, you know, frankly, your emotional management of the situations that you find yourself in. And the more that awareness and the more you can learn how to proactively situations and that emotional response, the better you're going to be. And I'm fine with the 19 year old surgeon. Sure.
0: Hmm. Okay. Well, let's segue into that too. Cause that's, that's what you do now, right? If you want to tell the audience a little bit about your business that you have now and the coaching and counseling that you do.
1: Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> when I left consulting, I started a coaching firm and it it's for, uh, you know, people who work in very, very demanding industries. So people who identify as high achievers, right? So these are the Gotcha. Yeah. So you know, tech, healthcare, first responder, what, you know, whatever. So these these people who operate at a very high level, the decisions that they're making have, you know, they're they're far reaching. They feel like very, very high stakes decisions that they need to make. And Hmm. uh, I've, I've coached people who are 19 years old, and then people who are in their 50s. And so it's one of those things that, uh, you know, you'll be learning and grappling with at any stage of your career. Hmm. And, uh, but yeah, that's, that's what I do currently. And then on the med tech side, I'm still I'm still doing that. But I'm I'm advising more kind of startup founders and, uh, yes. and venture capital. What ends up happening is these two domains of professional expertise end up merging because I can't, you know mentor uh, you know a startup founder in tech without also coaching them through how they need to, become more uh, responsible with their emotional reactions being in this in this space so it's a it's a very interesting merge of those two those two areas
0: and now your services your coaching services start off with what's called a pathfinder session right yeah yeah now can you tell me a little bit about that
1: yeah, well, I found that um, because a lot of the people that I work with are just—they are whip smart, right? I mean, they didn't get to mm-hmm. where they were by, you know, not working, being problem solvers, and so um, it didn't—it didn't always work for me to require a. Uh, sign up for like a six month long coaching engagement, right? When, when all they really needed was another person who was not emotionally involved in their decision and could ask the right questions to just get them over the hump. Right. So, Mm -hmm. so I started offering these Pathfinder sessions where look, you you just have to sign up for one session. If you just want, we just cut to the chase, right? No, you know, (laughs) introductions. And I I don't even wanna hear the background. Sometimes people are so (laughs) shocked by this. They're so shocked. I don't need to spend, you know, the first seven minutes with you explaining all the things. Just cut to the chase. What is the problem? I'm gonna ask (laughs) you some questions to get to the heart of the matter about the decision you need to make that's what we unpack i i'm i'm not here to tell you what Hmm. to do right but if you're feeling resistance if you're feeling fear if you're feeling uncertainty if you are indulging in all this confusion and you've been in this space of not being able to make a decision for six months i want to talk about why let's unpack that remove your blocks easily. And you don't need a six month coaching engagement for that, right? So that's what the Pathfinder session is. And then uh, some people, if they want to go forward, then yeah, then we can do other other coaching, more longer term coaching.
0: And and what does the longer term coaching look like? Do you give them a solution right away and then help them apply it? Or is it you breaking down more problems and more things in detail? Or, you know, what does the entity services look like?
1: A particular uh, model that I use for uh, emotional management, kind of uh, getting to the heart of what the actual problem is more than, you know, mm-hmm. y- people come into a coaching engagement with a superficial problem. It's very, yeah. very rare that people say, I don't know how to make this decision because bad in front of my colleagues. And I have self-esteem issues that come from like how my mom Mm -hmm. treated me when I was younger, right? I mean, people don't do that, right? So they say, you know, I'm having this really tough decision and I'm making pros and cons lists, the trade-offs and I can't really come to a decision. Can you help me? Right. Okay. So, um, (laughs) so, you know, so I have a six session program that kind of, And And it's it's a a five question cascade model. And it's basically, you know, here are the things that you need to ask yourself in order to get to the heart of the issue. And that, you know, that session in that engagement, we go through that. And then the rest of the sessions are practice, 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 because you need to Mm decondition yourself from all the stuff (laughs) that has gotten you to this position and, yeah. and being stuck in that place of confusion and uncertainty, and you need to practice to decondition yourself and kind of get out of that space. Um, so that's, you know, six sessions. And then, and then from there, th- there are just some executives that I coach on an ongoing basis, right? So it's kind of like a muscle that you need to, you know, yeah. use. Yeah good at it. Um, And some people just want to, for example, uh, make good decisions quicker, right? They want to, they want to minimize the time that they're in confusion and uncertainty. And so maybe we need a three month engagement to kind of get them, you know, in the practice of that. Um, So yeah, it, it really does depend, but those are the, those are the things that I focus on.
0: Now, what is the DART method? Hmm. is that what you were explaining to me there
1: yeah so the dart method is a way of um it's a process that i developed over years working leading teams and uh, uh just working in the med tech world um, that had to do with people making decisions um hmm. so dart stands for the decision the accountable party the rationale for the decision and then the time Mm -hmm. people use you know smart goals and other things like that and those are those are fine and uh you know the dart method is a way to anchor yourself in the rationale behind why you're making that decision so again it's surfacing the emotional piece right (laughs) because you know uh james clear the guy who wrote atomic habits he says he says guys winners and losers have the same goals Mm -hmm. like that's so (laughs) that is so impactful to me and so the question Mm -hmm. becomes what is the difference between people who are meeting their goals and the people who don't and what I found in my practice and over the years is it's less about uh, you know all the motivational stuff it's 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 more about what's holding you back and so you have to unpack and once you remove the blocks it's it's really a lot easier but the way to do that is when you make a decision surface what the rationale is what the true rationale is for why you're making that decision and why that decision actually gets you closer to what you want Mm -hmm. and so the the dart method kind of came out of that it's can, can you become very practiced at explaining the rationale behind what is the justification why on earth do you think that's good why do you think that will work being able to you know be honest with yourself on that and then and then you know taking care of that then you can execute there are more steps in the dart process but that that's really the crux of it
0: now you know i told you i wanted to use your services in the future here and i wanted Mm -hmm. to kind of get into that a little bit here Um, I have two issues I kind of wanted to bring to you and get a quick opinion on, right? Yeah. Um, One of them is uh, I am in the middle of uh, doing projects myself um, that are about to be funded and I'm about to get rolling on hiring next year and plan on having a few hundred employees, right, at a big startup. Yeah. Um, And I have always been uh, a leader, right? Uh, All of my sports teams I always played on. I was a leader. Um, student council, I was a leader. I was a leader of my friendships. I was a leader of my relationships and family units, and you name it. I've always been the leader. I've always been seen as somebody who's very creative and innovative and kind of always been the person that everybody looks to for guidance and leadership. Yeah. Right. But I, and in that, I have attracted a lot of talented people to come want to work with me, but I've had problems in the past with keeping them. Um, And keeping particular people that are smarter than I am, right? Mm. Or people kind of getting in there and wanting to get things going, but maybe I was slow to do something or didn't act upon something. Um, How would someone like myself, you know, I was about to hire all these people kind of be able to curb that and kind of basically uh, solve that issue.
1: Yeah. So when hiring talent, there are a couple of things that I tell people to focus on, um, and it mm-hmm. it does depend on the level that you're hiring people at. So if you're hiring, like, entry-level associates to do data entry and stuff like that, uh, yeah. that's kind of the traditional way that you think of hiring, right? You have, mm-hmm. you have a job description with duties and responsibilities, and then you put up a job posting, and then you interview people, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Yep. That is way more straightforward than hiring people to help you run things Mm -hmm. (laughs) and hiring people to help you meet goals. Okay. So that is, uh, and honestly, at at that level, like the job description with duties and responsibilities is honestly less important. People think I'm crazy for saying this, but what is Or what are the goals and what are the key metrics that you're going to be holding that person to in order for you guys to know that this is going well. Okay. The duties and responsibility, like, I don't even care how you do it. Like I don't care. Why am I going to define all the duties and responsibilities in the way you should be operating day to day? -day? Forget it. Like, if at the end of the quarter, you meet this... I'm happy you're happy everybody's happy right Mm -hmm. and and part of that means knowing the the balance between setting the right metrics for an individual Mm -hmm. for that role right and that's a whole other conversation how do you do that but yeah but secondly is balancing that with the guideposts and the parameters right so if if you're the main guy you're setting the culture you're setting the the values of the organization you're setting the goals right and mm-hmm. and so there's there's got to be some parameters around how people operate but the day to day stuff you know you got to let them use their own judgment you got to screen people for their decision making right mm-hmm. not duties and responsibilities decision making and then that balance is going to be the recipe for, for success going forward.
0: Hmm. Now, the second part of the question is my, uh, energy level, I guess, drive, right? I'm a very driven person, yeah. the, you know, and then being this leader, I always am in decision making positions, but I find myself, you know, randomly throughout the year, uh, every year where I'm like, you know, I want to be irresponsible today. I don't want to have this much weight on my shoulders today. And you really can't back out from these types of leadership positions or take the days off, you know, when people are counting on it. How do you still muster up that kind of energy and and drive to kind of keep going, even on those days where, you know, you don't want to?
1: Yeah. (laughs) You kind of want to have it there. This is such a good example. So this goes back to what I was talking about earlier, which Mm -hmm. instead of asking yourself the question, what additional thing do I need to do in order to stay to ask the question yeah. what is holding me back what what is driving me down what am I afraid of happening what am I not interested in why am I why am I not interested in that unpack mm. the reasons why you're not motivated rather than finding a bunch of new things to keep you motivated until you unpack the stuff mm. that's holding you back you're any kind of extra motivation that you're that you're going to incorporate into your work style, your lifestyle and your routine, it's not going to be sustainable. It'll work for a little bit, right? You can look in the mirror and say, you know, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And, you know, people love me. Uh, And that those affirmations will work.
0: Uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) They will work for a little (laughs) bit. That's my
0: word there. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And so if you start to explore, why am I unmotivated right now? What is it that is, you know, it's just making me feel uninterested. I'm, am I scared of something happening? You know, a lot of times with the people that I work with, it's that they don't know. That's it. They, they have a, there is a discomfort with ambiguity, right? Because they don't know exactly. How to do the thing? Yeah, they're really uncomfortable. They they're playing the avoidance game. They're putting things off. They're procrastinating. They're doing other things instead of the thing that they feed that's super priority. But because they just don't know exactly how it plays out every single step, they're Uh not working on it
0: at all. (laughs) That's that's very true. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So Mm. that's what needs to be addressed.
0: Okay, okay. And now, uh, last part of this question, I'm sorry. One of my goals is to bring about uh, many women right into this company. It's something I yeah. talked to my mother about as a child and wanted to uh, hire tons of women. How, but one thing I've noticed is, you know, women not getting along, right? Obviously, I've <laughs> been growing up and then seeing that. How, what advice would you give a lot of women, you know, listening that are going to work together um, in a workplace? How do you manage women getting along Uh, in the workplace, is my honest question there, as crazy as it may sound, you know, with massive amounts, say, you know, 40 to 50 in a room and 200 in a building, you know, just women even.
1: Yeah. So I've coached um, a couple of women leaders on this actually at Facebook and Google. And it's fascinating because um, you you don't like, you, you don't like to think that that happens um <laughs> but it does um yeah yeah and i think that there's an element here of scarcity so when when you are operating within scarcity um this mm, is just human right like more yeah. scarcity more competition right? I mean, yes. that's just being human. So there, there might be an element of that. But, but mm. the one thing that wh- the way I've coached women leaders through that in the past is a lot of the tension in those relationships and those work relationships and that competition comes f- from extra Not looking internally, they're just noting yeah. what the other people are doing And then they're making it mean something, right?
0: (laughs) Okay, absolutely.
1: Right? And so a lot of my coaching is like, okay, tell me what happened. Facts, by the way, which is super hard. It's super hard for people Uh. to say just the facts. Just the facts, or there's no adjectives, no adverbs, no qualifiers, (laughs) no, it's like, this person walked into the room and said, quote, whatever. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you get down to the facts and then you get to, so what did you make that mean? Yeah. What, what, what are you layering on top of that? Right? right. And it is, it's such an important process because, because what it does is it separates fact mm-hmm. from like all the other stuff. All the other stuff. And it's just really important to recognize and take responsibility <laughs> for mm. the layers of thoughts and beliefs and all the things that you are putting on it, Right? Yeah. Because then it becomes less about, you know, well, so-and-so did this and more about, well, this is what I interpret that to mean. This is this is what you know. These are my values, and is that person? Does that person have to live according to my values? Well, I don't know, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, those projections, right?
1: Yeah, totally. And so, um, now, how I I'm not sure that as an external party, there you have control over that. But again, if you are setting company culture, company values, you know, even being able to say, the way we work here is we take personal responsibility for how we show up on the job, (laughs) right?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: We ask ourselves first, what are we making that mean? What did we do? What did we say? We take ownership of how we show up, regardless of how other people show up. Right. It's like in a in a relationship or a marriage, which a lot of these working relationships can feel like sometimes. Right. A lot of coached women and men, too, who are always about, well, well, my spouse does this, which I don't like, or my spouse doesn't do enough of this, which I don't like. And I come back to the question is, what kind of wife do you want to be? What kind of husband do you want to be? Driver, you show up re- regardless of how your spouse shows up. You show up first, the way That's that right. you want to show up. And mm-hmm. if that is the kind of person, then that you're surrounding yourself with, that you're building a company with, you know, regardless of you know gender, then I think you have a better opportunity for building something where there's less scarcity, less more people showing up the way they believe, you know, the the best way to show up is.
0: Hmm. Now, kind of my last question here, and then this one might be silly, but definitely the most important, um, is how do you kind of balance the, you know, uh, sexual atmosphere and attraction at work? You know, I've had uh, multiple positions now in my uh, government accounting background where I was the only man amongst uh, a few women. And it was awful, right? These are married yep. women who you're hitting on me and things like that. And I've yep. also been in another position where I worked in a warehouse and there's only a few women and we're all hitting on all the women, right? I mean, yep. it's normal. People hook up at work all the time, but how do you manage that? I mean, we see that everywhere, Hollywood, you know, cases everywhere, right? How do you manage that type of thing in the workplace?
1: Yeah, well, uh, this is true when the tables are turned too. You can have mm-hmm. an Absolutely. entire, right? an entire. Who will be working and operating in a certain way? You introduce a woman in there, and now everything, you know, everything's different. different. Everything's different. different. Yeah. I don't know that there's anything to be done about that.
0: (laughs) You you can't beat sexual attraction, Well,
1: I mean, you're, yeah, people are going to people.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: And Mm -hmm. so, you know, the question is how do you manage it? Yeah. You manage it on your own and you manage yourself. Time trying to manage other people, how they're going to be, right? You Mm -hmm. you need to decide. Now you you may make a decision. I don't want to be in that environment. (sighs) I don't want to have to manage that, right? That's a separate question. If you're in Mm -hmm. it and you want to manage it, the only thing you can manage is yourself. So you decide how you're going to be in those situations, how you're going to handle it, how you're going to show up, Um, and then that's all you can do. And now what happens as Of that, right? Rather than trying to manage other people, when you focus exclusively on managing yourself, one thing that Mm -hmm. often follows is other people start to act right. Other people respond accordingly, right? Mm -hmm. That's not a guarantee, right? (laughs) That's not a guarantee. (laughs) But, but I think when you focus on this, is how I on the workplace this is how I show up as a leader in those situations then you'll find mm-hmm. that other people tend to fall in line to some degree
0: do you, do you think you know dressing has any kind of variable to it I know I, when I worked and I first started this government job I was I had you know I was working out I had shirt uh shirts on I had tight pants and things and then when I started to dress next thing you know i wasn't getting complimented i wasn't up for raises you know i was put into the back office rather than the front by the girls like you know do you think uh you could curb that kind of thing with you know a work attire
1: i mean it it might i so what um but i want you to notice that what (laughs) you have have experienced is your those those are your observations yeah. And that's what they are. They're observations, right?
0: True. Very to true, to yeah.
1: what degree they are absolute truth. I mean, who knows? That's true. Right? But that's true. <laughs> you, have, you have a certain lens through which you've interpreted yeah. all those things that have happened. And you're yeah. going to act accordingly. Now, if you were to, I, I mean, what I would say is do what you want. <laughs> Show up how you want, Right. Yeah. Now, if you are trying to manage other people's responses, other people's words, other people's behavior, you're gonna drive yourself crazy.
0: That's true. <laughs> now what about bonding and, and my last question, I'm sorry, no we'll wrap it up here. What yeah. about bonding and uh, team outings and things like that, how important is that in the workforce?
1: Yeah. Um, well, it turns out, so they've done studies on this and it turns out that team cohesion Mm
0: -hmm.
1: out of uh stress stress really when people are for example working in a startup like the first Uh you know your team member your employee number five and you know, there are no like formal job descriptions. Everybody is just in there doing as much as you can. You know, you're putting out fires like crazy. You're working the long hours. And it's through that stressful experience that the bonding occurs. Mm -hmm. Um, You go through other like really high stress projects where what the outcome of that Matters, you know, it's just high stakes, right? Everybody is on the line. Mm-hmm. That's bonding, okay, mm. and and all the other stuff, not so much. Now, any other bonding that occurs outside of those stressful situations is coincidental. So it's you know people just happening. If they met at a party, they'd get along, right? Yeah, and so what you're finding is those team, uh, those team outings is they're trying to recreate a sense of something. What you're you're yeah. putting people through discomfort uh, artificially, but you're pu- you're putting them through discomfort in order to create bonds, hmm. and that's what that's what all those things are about. Like fall, fall people catch you and. Or or the vulnerability. So you Uh, you go on these team outings and then there there are kind of built-in vulnerability exercises, right? That's stress. Stress. And so that's what those things are. And and so if you have these outings, you know, and these team bonding (laughs) experiences and nobody bonds, it's because there wasn't enough stress. There, Hmm. there was there nobody felt vulnerable, nobody at risk. There was yeah. no risk involved, so nobody bonded.
0: Do you think it, it's manipulative, as, as myself, to create, you know, this artificial stress or stressor stressing environment in order to have this bond happen, or no? You know, take okay.
1: No, you oh, well, I mean, you could tell your employees. Yeah, I mean, I- you could point to the studies and say team cohesion is built out of stress. And so, yeah, yeah, we're not in, and again, if you are in a high stress situation on the job and people come together, I mean, those are the things that would create some of that team cohesion, people just going through it. They have a single goal, right? And it's all about, and again, it's not duties and responsibilities, right? Because people will get caught up in, that's not my job, that's your job. So let go of all of that. And instead, if everybody is working toward a, they have their metrics to know whether or not it's going well or going badly, and they're just all focused on that common goal, then then you're you're likely to get that that cohesion. And if you want to do the add the offsite thing, just yeah, let them know that that's what's <laughs> that's what this is. <laughs> that's
0: awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, now tell uh, the audience, I guess, where they can find you, and, and what's next for you, actually, too. What What are your kind of goals for the next year? Any uh, mm-hmm. anything important?
1: Yeah, I have. I'm I'm at the point where. Well, so first of all, if if anybody's interested in uh, some executive coaching and going through some of the programs that I mentioned here, they can go to AurelianCoaching.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-A-N. Aureliancoaching.com. Um, if there's anybody in the startup world who's looking for a yes. uh, mentorship can, can go, go to nicoleprisky.com. Nicole yeah. That's my med tech advisory. They can find me through a number of different accelerators and, and, uh, you know, startup groups there. Um, and then Next for me is I have a lot of things bubbling that I'm at the point where I'm trying to make a go no go decision on on doing Mm -hmm. so I, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it's ironic, I am now in, in the position of (laughs) uncertainty and confusion and trying to self coach my myself out of that. Um, Mm -hmm. Because yeah, any any new venture is going to require you know, some time and effort and just the the mind share that is required yeah. for starting something like that. And you know, at the same time, I'm a wife, I'm a I'm a mom, I'm homeschooling exactly. and doing all those things. So I just have to make a go-no go decision on some of that stuff. But regardless, those two AurelianCoaching.com and NicoleCustier.com are the those are steady state. So I continue to work with people through those channels.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And now, where do you go? You know, when you need help with things, or you need some reflecting, or just a shoulder yourself, is that the I, husband, or do you have people in your circle?
1: Yeah. So um, I have a coach. Um, awesome. Who, who is a coach who is very well matched to me. So she she'll just call. I don't know if I can curse on this, but she will call me on my. Oh, you're okay. <laughs> okay, she'll call me on my bullshit every time. Um, every time. And our coaching sessions are like literally 15 minutes. Like hmm. she will just, you know, it's no backstory. Like this is the problem. She will <laughs> ask the question. She's like, why do you, why are you even wasting time on this? You know, the, her, one of the best questions that she asked me is when I say, I don't know. And I also use this with some of my clients. Just pretend that you do know now what's your answer.
0: <laughs> i love that let's
1: just that's pretend great. right pretend yeah. you did know and she's like i'm look i'm not going to hold you to it but don't tell me you don't know that's complete <laughs> bullshit you absolutely do know now let's mm-hmm. unpack why you're not going forward with that like why is that creating so much discomfort why are you afraid of that 15 yeah. minutes and then i'm on but so I do have a coach and um, but my husband is also an entrepreneur. He's a product based op- entrepreneur. He's, you know, uh, worked in D.C. So he's also a good natural coach. And so he's a good person to bounce ideas off of. So, yeah, I just I have a couple of really good avenues that I can, <laughs> I can go to <laughs> when I'm stuck, because that definitely happens.
0: Good deal. Good, good. Well, Nicole, I really appreciate you doing my podcast. It's been great. It's been probably one of my favorite episodes I've ever done. You are the bomb. You're so awesome.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, I've had a really good time here. You are a great facilitator for a good conversation. You ask good questions, and uh, yeah, I I hope this was helpful for your listeners. I've certainly had a good time.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And I look forward to uh, getting back in touch with you soon. I've got. Uh, A wealth of things that uh, I've got to bring your way a bunch of problems to bring your way all (laughs) All right (laughs) good deal all right thank you audience again for tuning in you guys know you can catch me every Thursday on every platform this is Michael thank you again Nicole and uh, we will see you guys again next weekend
1: thank you